This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello, it's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the One Verse Podcast. We're almost done with this series on hell, based on my book, What is Hell? The book's been out now for about two weeks or so, and doing fairly well on Amazon. In fact, you go over to my website, and you can just click on the banner up at the top. to be taken directly over to Amazon, where the book is for sale. It's also for sale on Apple iBooks and Barnes & Noble, Kobo, so on. Everywhere else books are sold. Right now, it's the number one new release in eschatology, which is pretty exciting. And if you've read the book, you know that very early on in the book, I predict that there will be people who believe in hell as a place of suffering, torture, torment for unbelievers. And so they will not like the content of my book. And so they will condemn me as a heretic and even consign me, condemn me to hell for writing a book like this. And it didn't take them long. I already have 11 reviews on the book and one of them... No surprise, is a one-star review from a guy named Johnny. And he says, has this guy ever read his Bible? (laughs) Continuation of the pacification of the modern churches to a happy ever after scenario to God's eternal plan. Broad is the way to destruction. God have mercy on the people that buy this message. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear him that can both destroy the body and soul. So he doesn't really say much about the book. In fact, it doesn't even look like he read the book. It is not a verified purchase review on Amazon, but he's heard, or maybe he read the review that I am looking at the biblical evidence that teaches about hell or what it does not teach about hell. And he is concerned that I am sending people to hell, maybe even going there myself because I'm teaching a passage or a message that God does not send people to burn, scream, and suffer forever in a lake of fire, eternal horror, burning, screaming, terror, suffering, all that. So he doesn't like that. So uh, he basically says, if you read this book, you are headed to hell yourself. And in fact, probably I am headed to hell for writing this book. Anyway, it was my prediction. I think that more of these will come in. It's, only, it's the only one one-star review, though, but uh, and most of them are four and five stars so far. Anyway, if you've left a review already, thank you so very much. If you haven't bought the book yet, now's the time. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, iTunes, basically everywhere books are sold. So today we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians verses 1, 8, uh, verses 1, 8 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. And the verses, it's probably best to begin by looking at the passage. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. The the text says this, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So it has these verses or these references in here to flaming fire, and vengeance, and that God is going to send this, apparently, on people who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be punished with everlasting destruction. 
All right. I would say that because of the imagery and these terms and phrases in this text, it may be one of the strongest passages in Scripture to support this popular concept among some Christians, among some churches, of eternal torment and torture and punishment in fire for all unbelievers, for the unregenerate dead. Now, that is the way it seems. If you read the verse out of context. If you do not do a careful analysis, grammatical analysis, contextual analysis of the phrases that Paul is using, and you ignore the surrounding context, then yes, you can say, you can quote this verse out of context uh, and uh, make it say that God sends people to scream burn, suffer in eternity. But I believe that we should study the Bible passages in their context, and that's what we're going to do with this passage, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. Now, if you've listened to all of the previous studies on this, then you probably already know where we're headed on this uh, study, Uh, but we're going to study it anyway just to sort of help you along, and uh, I'll show you what I have learned from this. Now, first of all, it's important to know that Paul is alluding to numerous other passages in Scripture. This is really important whenever you're studying Paul or the Gospels or anything. A lot of times we, as modern Christians, sort of ignore a lot of the Old Testament, and so we are unfamiliar with a lot of the imagery and ideas and symbolism that are prevalent, that are found everywhere in the Old Testament. And so when Paul, as a good Jewish scholar. He didn't have the New Testament at this time. He only had the Hebrew scriptures or Jesus when he's teaching or any of the New Testament authors. They are drawing upon imagery and symbolism and ideas and words that are found all over the place in scripture. Now, when we studied, for example, Matthew 13 verses 36 to 43 or Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we did see that Jesus in those parables was drawing upon a lot of this imagery from the Hebrew scriptures. Paul is doing the same thing here, and so you sort of need to understand all of these images of vengeance and fire and so on from what how they were used in, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament, in order to properly understand Paul. And I'm not going to cover a lot of that because, again, you can go listen to previous studies where we ran through a lot of the imagery of fire, what it symbolizes, and even we've talked about punishment and so on in previous studies as well. But the main imagery that is important here is this idea of the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. We're going to talk about that as well in just a minute. And then the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. This um, really is a quote to this idea of presence of the Lord and the glory of his power is probably an allusion to Isaiah 2, 19-21 and Isaiah 66, 15, 16, and 24. We talked about Isaiah 66, 24 previously, by the way. But uh, Paul is alluding to that. Now, what is interesting, though, is if you go back and you look at the Hebrew text for those passages that Paul is alluding to, they all refer to the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. But Paul takes out the word terror and puts in the word presence. He is, in a sense, misquoting the Hebrew Bible. Now, some people might have problems with that, but I think Paul right here is showing his cards. He's tipping his hand. He's showing us that God does not terrorize people, right? God is not in the business of 
punishing and torturing people. He changes this word terror and puts in the word presence instead, showing that he has something completely different in mind than maybe what some of these Old Testament texts might have said. And uh, he's showing a different way of understanding them. So what does this idea then about the presence of the Lord or from the presence of the Lord mean? So Paul does write, he says that uh, the flaming of vengeance, the, the flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And here's the key phrase, from the presence of the Lord. So what does that phrase mean? When most people read this, they sort of focus in on that word from and uh, think that this terror, this vengeance, this flaming fire, this everlasting punishment is coming from God. And that's sort of the way people understand that. Uh, But what we fail to understand, again, this is because we often do not understand Hebrew culture and the ancient Mediterranean culture. What people fail to understand is that this phrase, from the presence of the Lord, was an idiom. It was a figure of speech, very common and prominent at that time, in that day, which didn't mean something coming from God. It referred instead to the honor of God. The phrase literally could be translated, before the face of the Lord, prosopo to curio, okay? And it is a specific Hebrew idiom which refers to the honor of God. In biblical times, you may not know this, but in biblical times, the greatest cultural value was honor. People sought to gain and keep honor for themselves and sought to get rid of shame. Today, in modern Western civilization, our greatest value is wealth and materialism. So everything we do is trying to gain more possessions for ourselves, more money for ourselves. But uh, So that's our greatest value, is wealth and possessions and prosperity. That's what guides us and what directs most people. It's not the way we're supposed to be, but that is what is prominent and common in our culture. It wasn't that way in the ancient Near East, in Mediterranean culture and society. In fact, it's not even that way today over there. Over there, uh, especially in the days of Jesus and Paul, even as far back as Moses and Abraham, all right, they valued honor and tried to avoid shame. And in a society like that, there were basically parts of the body and symbols and actions that were considered honorable and other parts of the body and so on that were considered shameful. So for example, the left hand, uh, a foot, the buttocks were symbols of dishonor, whereas the head, the face, and the right hand were considered symbols of honor. So when we read about extending the right hand of fellowship, this is basically honoring somebody who's in your midst. That's what it's talking about. It's not just extending your right hand to give them a shake, all right? It's it's about giving honor to guests in your midst. So when Paul or any biblical author refers to the presence of the Lord, and again, the literal translation is the face of the Lord, or before the face of the Lord, they're not referring to the, you know, the physical face of God, because God doesn't have a face, except if you're thinking of Jesus. Uh, but, but instead, they're referring to God's honor. And by the way, it, on my podcast study of Jonah 1.3, when Jonah fled from before the presence of the Lord, this is in Jonah 1.3, 
This is not Jonah thinking that he can get away from God. Jonah is smart enough to know that he can never escape God. What Jonah was doing is he was dishonoring God. He was bringing shame upon God. That's what the verse means. And I talk about that in great length in my podcast study on Jonah 1.3. You can go listen to that if you would like. So that's what Paul is referring to here as well. And further support for this idea is found in the fact that Paul writes about the power and glory of God in, in the surrounding verses. And power of God and the glory of God are concepts, ideas that are similarly connected, closely connected with the concepts of honor in the ancient Near East, in the Mediterranean culture and society. Okay? So when Paul says, he, when Paul talks about from the presence of the Lord, he is not saying, he's not talking about flaming fire, vengeance, and eternal punishment that comes from God. He's talking about um, something that is associated with God, uh, but it, it is, is basically God caring for his own honor. Paul is basically saying that if you, if we, neglect the honor of God, then there will be consequences, negative consequences, that will come upon us as a result. So, so, so this word from, to get sort of technical here, it's not causal. Paul is not saying, here is the cause of these things happening. I mean, it is causal, but it's not saying that God is the cause. It's saying that we humans are the cause because we have dishonored God. We have despised the Lord's honor. We have brought shame upon God and therefore suffer the consequences. Now, the key, though, is how those consequences are brought upon us. And this is what Paul is explaining in the rest of this passage. The suffering and the consequences which come upon us for neglecting God's honor don't come from God. They come from the honor of God. So basically, here's how this works. And I talked about this a lot in other podcast uh, studies, in uh, various books, and uh, lots of um, lots of. Uh, articles on my site. You know, I wrote my master's thesis on the honor and shame in ancient Near Eastern society as well, culture. And so a lot of this is coming from those books or from that study, which is not available to you. I'm sorry. Eventually I want to get it published so you can read it if you'd like. But uh, it really, really helps us understand this concept of honor and shame, helps us understand much of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But here's how it works for God. God created us. We know this from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And then to help us give, live the best life possible, he gave us instructions. And he didn't just do this in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but the whole Bible is all about God giving us instructions for how we can live in his world in the best way possible. This is God's honor. It is him taking care of his creatures, of his family, of his beloved ones. In a sort of a, a, he's sort of a patron, in a sense, taking care of us, providing for us, guiding us, directing us, telling us how we can have the best life in his world. All right? But, and so that would be, that's God's honor. And when we live in light of that, when we obey God, when we do what he has told us to do, then we are, in a sense, returning God's honor to him. We are honoring God. We are giving honor back to him. All right? Uh, but of course, if we disobey, then we are dishonoring God. We are putting shame upon God. Now, the result of disobeying God is that there will be natural consequences for it. 
All right? Uh, natural consequences of, of doing what God has said don't do in this life. And a lot of times we get confused because if we disobey God and then we suffer the natural consequences of it, we say, God, why are you doing this to me? And God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm not doing that to you. You're doing it to yourself. I told you not to go there, do that thing, but you did it anyway. And why do you think I told you not to do that? It's not because I was going to hit you over the head if you did, but because when you go over there, bad things are going to happen. That's why I warned you about it in the first place. I've talked about this idea in various podcast episodes and studies about sin bearing its own punishment with it. God doesn't punish us for our sin. Sin has its own punishment, and since God loves us, he doesn't want to see us get hurt by sin, and so that's why he tells us, don't sin, all right? Uh, And so when we do sin, it's not God punishing us, it's our sin punishing us. And who made us sin? (laughs) We did that on our own. All right. And so uh, sin bears its own punishment with us, which is why God warns us against sin. And that is what Paul is talking about in these verses. So he has these three terms that have negative ideas to them. They are uh, the phrase repay with tribulation. In uh, 1.6, we have uh, flaming fire taking vengeance. That's in 1.8. And then we have punished with everlasting destruction in 1.9. What is important to recognize about these three phrases is that they are all describing the same thing, the negative consequences that come upon us when we despise the Lord's honor, when we dishonor God by disobeying him. And you can sort of put them one on top of each other and realize that all three phrases are parallel. So if you understand one You can understand the other two, and vice versa. By understanding the other two, it helps you understand one of the more confusing ones. So so let's just study these three phrases real briefly to get a better understanding of what Paul is talking about with these three phrases. The first one is repay with tribulation. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.6 that God will repay with tribulation those that trouble you. All right, this word tribulation is thlipsis in Greek, and it doesn't refer to hell. Nowhere does it refer to hell. It always refers to temporal calamity, problems in this life here and now. It refers to negative outward circumstances, okay? Not anywhere in Scripture does this word thlipsis refer to eternal sufferings in torment of burning flames, screaming agony, pit of hell, burning flames for all eternity. It does not refer to that anywhere. It is always referred to troubles and negative experiences in this life now. So Paul says in verse 6, writing about tribulation, writing about thlipsis, he's saying that when others seek to bring, bring trouble upon us for following Jesus as one of his disciples— God will turn those troubles back around upon them. It's not a form of punishment or violence. It's simply the principle that God has built into this world that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. If you are a violent person, don't don't be surprised when violence comes upon you. Right? And that is just the principle here. So when people tries to cause trouble for Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus, 
then Paul says, well, trouble is going to, or, trouble is going to come upon them as well. And that's just the way this world works. All right, the second term then is vengeance with flaming fire. And Paul writes in verse 1-7 that this repayment on those who try to trouble us, this repayment will come in flaming fire taking vengeance. Again, we're tempted to think hell, but we just saw that the first term, repay with tribulation, is parallel to flaming fire taking vengeance. All right, so, so, so the terms are uh, explaining one another. The concept of vengeance is parallel to the idea of repayment in 1.6, and so flaming fire is parallel to tribulation. And we saw that tribulation is only in this world, never refers to any afterlife experience of anybody. Therefore, this flaming fire also is only in this world. The concepts are parallel, right? They are explaining each other. This means that even when Paul here talks about flaming fire, he's not referring to the fires of hell. Furthermore, as we've seen in numerous previous studies, the term fire, the image of fire, as seen nearly everywhere in Scripture, refers to the devastation and destruction that comes upon people now, in this life as a natural consequence for disobeying God. God has given us instructions for how to live this life the best way. If we choose not to live this life the best way, then fire comes into our life. That is destruction. It's not referring to everlasting hell. It's referring to our life being destroyed, our goals and plans coming to ruin, to nothing. Okay, That is what the image of fire means all over the place in the Bible, and that fits perfectly what Paul is talking about here, especially when this idea of flaming fire is is uh, seen in parallel with this concept of tribulation, flipsis from verse 6. Okay? So, the fire destroys people's plans and goals. Uh, It leaves emptiness and ashes behind. And this concept of vengeance, flaming fire in vengeance, yes, vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Romans 12, 19, Hebrews 10, 30. All right, we humans are not supposed to take vengeance. And according to 2 Peter 2.14, God often carries out this vengeance through governors and rulers. How? Well, prison and fines and other things like that. When does that happen? In this life. (laughs) This is not, again, about the afterlife. It's about temporal consequences in this life here and now. So that's the second term, flaming fire with vengeance or vengeance with flaming fire. The third and final term then Punishment with everlasting destruction. All right, we're tempted to think everlasting destruction. Well, clearly, this is everlasting torture, torment, burning, screaming, suffering, agony in hell, isn't it? Well, look, we've already seen the two previous phrases and what they mean and don't mean. This one is in parallel to those two, so it means the same thing. And indeed, when we study the words that Paul uses, the word for punishment is not a good translation for what Paul wrote here. A better translation would be pay the penalty. There's fine words for punishment elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. Other words Paul could have used from the Greek, but he didn't use any of those. He used instead pay the penalty. That would be the best translation of the words that Paul uses here for punishment. And again, This is about paying the penalty. 
what brings to mind when we say that. This is not God punishing us. This is, look, you did something, and so you have to pay the penalty for what you did. This is not God punishing for our sin, us for our sin. This is us suffering the consequences for our own decisions. Think about in sports. A player is out there, and he is doing his best for his team, and then he commits a penalty. If the ref sees it, what's going to happen? Well, the player can get sidelined, right? He can get benched. He can get put in the penalty box. If his offenses are egregious enough, he can get ejected from the game. He can get fined. He can even have, um, you know, a suspension, multi-game suspension or something. He's not being punished or she's not being punished with these things. No, they made a decision, a bad decision, and now they are paying the penalty, paying the price for their bad behavior in the game. They made a choice, and the penalty is the consequence of that choice. They can't blame the ref for it, right? (laughs) They can't blame the coach for it. Well, maybe they could if the coach told them to do it. They can't blame the other team for it. They might try. Well, I was only responding to their behavior against me. Yeah, well, their behavior doesn't justify your behavior, all right? So that's the same idea here with punishment. It's about paying a penalty. You make a choice, there's a consequence, you got to pay it. Similarly, this idea of everlasting destruction. Uh, This is a, a favorite verse for people who believe in annihilationism. That is, when you die, you cease to exist, either immediately or after a period of time where you're tortured in eternity. I do not hold to annihilationism, and I don't think that's what Paul is teaching here either. All right? Um, and he's also not talking about everlasting uh, punishment or burning in hell. Again, the parallel concepts from the preceding verses help us. This destruction, this everlasting destruction, whatever it is, takes place here and now, in this life. And not it, this is not about the afterlife. And the concept here of the words, uh, olethron ionion, is about a destruction that takes place in this life, which brings ruin to the plans and goals of the people and nations upon whom this destruction comes. In fact, rather than destruction... I prefer the translation of ruin, because that sort of carries a better idea here. Olethron, uh, is, you can translate it as ruin, and I like that. Everlasting ruin, I think, better carries Paul's meaning. It carries the idea of plans coming to ruin, or of instruments and tools being no further use. That's the way this word olethron is sometimes used. A carpenter or a blacksmith might have a tool, and it is ruined, and so therefore it is Olethron, it can no longer be used. All right? It does not carry the idea of everlasting torture or ceasing to exist, you know, going away and being annihilated, nothing like that. For example, you could use this, say, in modern words, modern ideas of a car being totally destroyed. We often talk about that. Someone gets in a car accident and the car is totally ruined, totally destroyed. All right? Now, has that car ceased to exist? No, uh, it exists, doesn't it? In pieces and parts, uh, but it no longer properly functions. It is beyond repair. That is what this word olethron means, which is translated as ruin. If I prepare a meal for my family, my wife usually does, but sometimes I cook very rarely, 
And as a result, I'm a little clumsy in the kitchen. So if I accidentally drop the meal on the floor, then my meal has been ruined, right? Very few people will eat a meal that has been dropped on the floor. Although we once did, we have a little funny joke in our family about pineapple upside down on the stairs pancakes. <laughs> my wife makes these pancakes that have coconut and pineapple in them. They're very, very delicious. And uh, once I was up in my study in a house we were renting and she was bringing them up to me and uh, stumbled a little bit and the pineapple was upside down on the stairs. So uh, the pineapple pancakes upside. So we now call them pineapple upside down on the stairs pancakes. Anyway, I, I don't remember if I ate those or not. Uh, they were wood stairs. They're not carpet. And uh, I think probably I did not eat them. But the point is you drop your meal on the floor. It is ruined. It is inedible. It cannot be enjoyed for the purpose to which it was prepared. And that's the same concept here with this word olethron or ruin. It doesn't mean that something is annihilated or ceases to exist. It also doesn't mean that the thing continues to be destroyed or hurt or damaged or beaten or battered for unending eternal times. If you totally destroy your vehicle, you're not thinking that someone is out there beating it with a hammer for all time. It is everlastingly, eternally, totally destroyed, completely useless, <laughs> okay? But someone's not out there in the junkyard beating it forever and ever, all right? So this word ever, this concept of everlasting destruction, eternal destruction, it's not about pain and suffering that goes on forever and ever. It's not about the activity of destroying or destruction continuing forever and ever. It just means that it is beyond repair. It is eternally destroyed. Uh, whatever is in view cannot be fixed. If a meal drops on the floor, that meal is everlastingly destroyed, eternally ruined. It cannot be salvaged, right? I cannot go and, and, and you know, pick up the meal and try to make it look a little better on the plate. You can try, but it's never going to look the way it did before you dropped it. A new meal has to be made. So that's this idea of olethron here in, in this verse. Eternal destruction means that something has come to ruin. It cannot be salvaged, restored, fixed, or repaired. Now, here in this verse, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about people and their plans and goals coming to ruin, coming to nothing. If we go back, in fact, and look at this word olethron in the LXX, which uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, most of the times this word is used, it is used in reference to foreign nations who seek to destroy and subjugate Israel. And God basically, in all of these Old Testament passages, tells these nations that the plans they made against Israel to destroy Israel are going to come back on their own heads exactly what Paul was saying earlier about the plans of some people trying to hurt Christians for following Jesus. In fact, a little bit later in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this very thing about the man of lawlessness, whoever that is. I'm not going to get into that in this study, all right? And uh, it's also discussed in numerous other biblical texts, some of which are by Paul. So the, the basic point here in all three phrases are the same. When God opens his mouth 
and speaks truth to power, to worldly power. The plans of those who disobey God, rebel against him, are living dishonorably toward him. Those plans come to ruin in this life. Their plans, they think they're going to last forever and ever, make their nation, you know, uh, amazing, uh, make them the, the lead nation in the world. All the other nations are going to bow down to them, whatever it might be. And God says, no, pride comes before the fall. Here's what's going to happen. And the nation is no more. The people themselves might continue to live. And there's no reference here about all the people of those nations or all the people who tried to do this, going to scream and burn suffering eternity. That's not in view. It's not in view in the context, the surrounding context, not in view with these words and terms that Paul uses. It's talking about their plans, their goals coming to ruin, coming to nothing, uh, experiencing everlasting failure, have no eternal consequence or significance. And that's what Paul is referring to here. All right, so take all this together. What is the everlasting destruction in the flames of fire that Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. It's the ruination in this life of the plans and the goals of the people and nations who pit themselves against God and his goals. Remember, going back to the very beginning, God set up this world to function in a very specific way, and he created us to function in a very specific way in this world. And if we say, I'm not going to go God's way, I'm going to go my own way, then this is despising the Lord's honor. And when that happens, there will be consequences. They don't come from God. They come from the way God set up this world. And they're natural consequences. We bring them upon ourselves. When we live contrary to the honor of God, rejecting his glory and his power, then our lives will not bring forth joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, but instead, emptiness and failure, our lives will be ruined, will come to ruin, will be uh, beyond repair. That's what Paul is talking about, flames of fire and eternal destruction. Now, this can come upon people and nations and countries in a variety of ways. Remember, it came upon the people of Jerusalem uh, and the Roman Empire after the days of Paul and destruction. We've talked about this before. In uh, 70 AD, Israelites tried to rebel against Rome, and Rome said, no, you don't. And they came in and wiped out the city, destroyed the temple, killed millions of people. It can occur in human history as the lives and, and work of people, nations, rulers fade from memory, have no lasting impact on other people. It can even come upon believers, by the way, at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 that, you know, we can work our whole life for things that have no eternal significance, so that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it all gets burned up. Wood, hay, and stubble burns away, and there's no gold, jewels, and precious stones to last for eternity. Paul goes on to say, we'll be saved. You know, we'll go on to eternity. Um, so as through fire, there's this idea of fire again. It's not talking about God sending some believers to suffer and scream and burn forever in eternity. That's not what 1 Corinthians 3 is about. So, one thing that is not in view in this passage is the one thing most people think is in view, which is God sending people, you know, to be tortured and scream and suffer in flames of hell for all eternity. That is not what Paul has in mind in this text or in any passage in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 is not about a future general judgment where unbelievers are consigned to eternal hell. 
Now, if it is explaining, this passage is explaining that the ways of this world are not the end of the matter. For a day is coming and has come when Jesus will vindicate his afflicted people. That's also here as well. He's telling the Thessalonians, Paul is, hey, look, I know that you're being afflicted. I know that you are suffering. But don't worry. God has your back. Problems will come upon the people who are creating you problems. But even then, these problems are not for eternity. Right? Instead, the sad reality of seeing their life's work and actions come to nothing. That's what they will experience. Come to nothing for eternity. But um, they will have no lasting significance on world history or events. Will fade away from memory among the people. You just look in history and see who has had the most impact on world history. Nine times out of ten, it's Christians. Many of the work of much of the work of non-believers has disappeared from existence. Names, events, actions, activity, no longer remembered. So if you want to be remembered, if you want to have an impact on this world, then follow Jesus. Do what Jesus says. Live in this world as God wants, desires, and instructs. If you choose to don't do that, well, then you will be despising God's honor. You will be not doing what God wants, and there will be natural consequences that come upon you as a result. There's no fiery, burning, screaming, suffering, everlasting torture in this verse at all. We've looked at context, both cultural context, the surrounding context, even context from Old Testament passages, and have seen that Paul is saying the same exact thing that every other passage in the New Testament and Old Testament teaches about fiery judgment coming upon people. It's not for the afterlife. It's in this life. It's still a warning, but it's not about God sending people to a torture chamber forever and ever and ever. All right? They are not referring to everlasting torture in hell, but temporal judgment in this life. Hope that all makes sense to you, helps give you some insight on how to understand this tricky passage from 2 Thessalonians and many of the other fiery passages in the New Testament in the Bible. Again, if you want a longer explanation, then you can get my book, What is Hell? Um, and also, I will have a course that goes along with this. It's going to be about 15, 16 hours of instruction related to uh, the book, What is Hell? And those who take the course will get a free PDF copy of the book at the end of the course. I should tell you, though, that the course is only available for people who are part of my discipleship group. And you can join the discipleship group at redeeminggod.com join. Uh, you, you get to take, by joining, you get uh, to take all of my courses and get free eBooks and a bunch of other uh, things for you there as well, including a private Facebook group. So go over there, check it out. We'll see you online. All right, see you next week when we look at the warning passages in Hebrews 6.